the happiness for many of us is about practicing. It's not something that happens to us. It's something that we control. And so happiness is about expending time and energy and effort, deciding that you want to be happy, deciding that you deserve to be happy, and then structuring your life in ways that bring you that happiness. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. As we start the new year, and many of us begin working to build habits that make us happier, I wanted to re-up this conversation about what we can do to become more efficient and productive without getting worn down and burnt out, especially as we navigate the turbulent changes of this strange new world we find ourselves in. So today I'm excited to have a good friend of politicology, Dr. Katherine Sanderson, back on the show to talk about this. Katherine earned her doctorate in psychology from Princeton University, and she's the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. She's also the author of The Positive Shift, Mastering Mindset to Improve Happiness, Health, and Longevity. Katherine, it's great to see you. Thank you for making the time, and welcome back to Politicology. Thank you for the invitation to talk about this really important topic. <laughs> well, let's start with the big picture then. What seems like almost a redundant question, why is happiness important? And how does being happy impact our lives, especially as we're in this long fight that can feel very tiring uh, to protect democracy and in the middle of a global pandemic? So... I honestly can't think of a topic that is more important than happiness because happiness is such a fundamental influence on not only how do we feel, you know, are we happy or are we not happy, but lots of research now also suggests that happiness influences how long we live, whether we are healthy, how we interact in our relationships. And so fundamentally and practically finding a way to be happy is essential. And as you note, it can be pretty darn hard these days mm. in the middle of our simultaneous you know, fight for democracy and mastering trying to get through what seems to be an endless global pandemic. So we've talked before about Trump's belief in positive thinking, uh, that if you just think positively enough, the problem will go away. We talked about that. Uh, way back last summer, I think, with Mary Trump as well. And so what I want to do before we dig into your work is have you sort of differentiate what we're talking about versus that uh, that sort of just think positively uh, idea that comes from Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking. I know these two these two things are vastly different, and what I don't want is for anyone to hear this podcast and walk away thinking, well, they just want me to think positively, right? Can you do that for us? Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you asked that question because I do think there is a danger in talking about positive thinking yeah. because it is so often assumed uh, to have really very a simplistic and, and frankly inaccurate role. I, I hear it a lot in which people say, I think well-meaning things like, well, you know, if you thought positively, you wouldn't have gotten cancer. Or, you know, if you yeah. thought positively, you know, you wouldn't have died of cancer, you know, and, and it really becomes this blame the victim mentality. Right. And certainly the example of Trump and the coronavirus, you know, 
I'm very positive person, <laughs> so I'm not going to die or, you know, be on a ventilator. There's actually a wonderful story that that I think is is relevant that I heard recently. It's a longstanding story, but I actually heard it recently on the Bulwark podcast yeah. with Charlie Sykes. And it's about religion, which I think is very similar. So mm. it describes the the anecdote is a person is is in a home that is flooding and has been warned, you know, you need to, to, to get out. You need to escape. You're going to die. And the person says, no, no, it's fine. I'm praying and I believe in God and, and God is going to save me. So doesn't escape the house. And then somebody comes by in a rowboat and says, hey, get in the rowboat. You know, you're you're going to drown. You know, there's this flooding. And the person says, no, 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 God is going to save me. Then person stays. Then a motorboat comes. Same story. Person says, I'm praying. Then a helicopter comes, <laughs> drops a line. Person says, no, 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 I'm praying. I'm good. Uh, and of course, the person drowns. Goes up, meets God in heaven and says, hey, you know, what happened? I, you know, I was praying and and I thought you were going to save me. And God says, well, I looked at my records. You know, we sent a rowboat and then a motorboat <laughs> and then a helicopter. You know, I don't know what happened. And so to me, that's a lovely story yeah. because it really illustrates, of course, when you talk about the power of positive thinking, it's not just sitting around going like, I'm going to think positively. It's actually acting so mm. that when the motorboat, rowboat, helicopter comes, you take advantage of that. So when we talk about positive thinking in psychology, it's not just a, a blind, naive, I'm going to think positively about kittens and rainbows and I'll be okay. It's actually saying, I'm going to think positively and I'm going to engage in behaviors mm. that will in fact allow that positivity to come out and to be uh, realized. Yeah. Okay. So this is a perfect segue to, uh, I think, a good place to begin with your work, which is mindset. So there's this perception that either you're happy or you're not that it's a binary condition to you. Like you said, you're a uh, rainbows and kittens or, you know, kittens riding Roombas type of person, uh, or, or you're not that it's fixed. Um, can you talk about why that is inaccurate and why our mindset, uh, is malleable? So, so I'm going to actually start by saying that nah, it's not totally inaccurate. And so <laughs> I have to be honest there are people and including, you know, people in the world, people listening to this who are more of the kittens and rainbows people who really do find it very easily mm. to find that silver lining. And so when we talk about mindset, there are people who say, yes, I can always find that positive mindset. I can always find some silver lining no matter what. I actually start my book, The Positive Shift, which with a true story, which is that but probably about you know five, six, seven years ago, I was delivering a talk at a big financial services conference on the power of positive thinking, you know, the science of happiness. And a woman came to hear my presentation. And at the end of the presentation, she came up and said, I really liked you. You know, you were great. And then she paused and said, and I have to be honest, I almost didn't come to hear your talk because I just figured that I would hate you. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, well, um, you know, uh, thank, thank you for you. that. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> thank you for that unusual compliment. And then I paused and I said, why, why did you think that you would hate me? And she said, well, I just figured anyone who talked about the science of happiness would be all about kittens and rainbows mm. and that you would be really irritating. Mm. And by the end of the hour, I would want to strangle you. And I use that example to illustrate something really important, that there are people in the world who can always find that silver lining. So for mm. some people, happiness is easier to find than other people. Mm. So I talk about happiness in terms of metabolism. There are people in the world who can eat whatever they want and they never uh. gain any weight. My brother is actually one of those people. Um, and they just have a really fast metabolism. 
But that doesn't mean that for the rest of us, you just, you know, should give up because it happens to be a little harder. So what I like to think about in terms of happiness is there are people who find it very easy to be happy, but there are other people who don't. And and I'm actually, honestly, I don't find it easy to be happy, which Mm -hmm. is always surprising for people, you know, because I write and talk about happiness, but I think I can only talk about happiness because I'm not naturally predisposed to be happy. Mm -hmm. I have a history of depression and bipolar disorder in my family that I, I very much struggle myself with being happy. And that therefore has led me to be interested in sort of thinking about this issue of mindset. What can those of us control Mm -hmm. who are not naturally happy? And I think the good news is, that for people who it maybe takes a little bit more effort to be happy, there are practical tools that we can use to be happier. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about fixed versus growth mindset. Uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before in our in our last conversation, but I think it's really core to this to understanding this work as well. So can you break down those uh, those that idea for our for our listeners, growth versus fixed mindsets? And this comes from um, Carol Dweck's work, uh, which which I think we're both very familiar with and is very very useful. Yes. And, and Carol, by the way, of course, would be a wonderful podcast guest. And I hope that, that she hears this and is inspired <laughs> um, to join you for a conversation. So Carol is a professor at Stanford and has really been instrumental within the field of psychology in helping us distinguish between what is often seen as a fixed mindset view. And the fixed mindset view very broadly is that our basic traits, abilities are fixed. They are stable. They do not change. And this could be anything. So it could be happiness, but it could also be, I'm good at math. I'm not good at math. I'm musical. I'm athletic. I'm extroverted. So it's a very broad view about how much our basic traits and characteristics are fixed and stable versus malleable. And the idea that Carol has really revolutionized is that having a fixed mindset can actually be detrimental because it also means that you're stuck. If I'm not good at math, I'm never going to be good at math. If I'm not happy, I'm never going to be happy. If I'm not high in empathy, I'm never going to be high in empathy. And what her work and and other people's work has shown is that adopting a growth mindset in which your basic traits, abilities, happiness, personality, musical ability, mathematical ability can instead be adopted in terms of a growth mindset that these things can change with effort and deliberate hard work. So I love this. And I also love the power that simple words have in changing mindset. And to your point, you can, you can think of yourself as being an unhappy person, or you can think of yourself as experiencing unhappiness, right? The language shift there has an enormous potential to help you sort of climb out of that uh, or, or recognize that you can change your state of mind if you want to. Well, absolutely. And and I think the issue is, is that if you think about yourself as a person who is not happy and will never be happy, there's no mm-hmm. reason to, to exercise try. any effort, right? Yeah. Why would you grab onto yeah. the, <laughs> the life raft or you know get in the rowboat? Because you are not happy and you are never going to be happy. So the idea that we have some agency and some control is really powerful. Yeah. Okay. When we talked about moral rebels, uh, we started by talking about the myth of monsters, that people do bad things because they are bad. But the reality is that it's more complicated than that. So what does that myth show us about how fixed and growth mindsets impact how we view other people 
And can we think of ourselves as being able to grow, but see other people as being fixed? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I think largely, yes, right? Because we can see, well, other people are naturally happy. And for me, you know, maybe I am never going to be happy like these other people, that sort of dichotomy. One of the most interesting research uh, findings is that, and again, I say this as a college professor, that one of the issues that many students have when they first arrive at college is they feel lonely. And they feel lonely because they are lonely, right? They're in a brand new environment. They don't know anybody. And all of a sudden they're thrown into this new world. And when students make internal attributions for that, it's me. Everybody else has all of these friends. Everybody else is doing great. Just look at their social media feeds. It's just me that it actually makes them feel worse. And one of the most important findings is that simply telling that to other people, hey, other first-year college students also feel lonely. It's not just you. That idea of making a different attribution for what other people are experiencing actually reduces loneliness because Mm. you don't feel alone and lonely. And that, (laughs) in fact, makes you feel better. Yeah. Okay. I want to uh, throw a curveball a little bit since this is a political podcast. So um, this this idea of, um, of being able to think of ourselves as having a growth mindset or as not being fixed, but but a a tendency to see other people as being fixed. Um, I wonder what you think about this question. So I spoke with Katie Hill uh, back on June 9th uh, about how we don't really have a path for redemption in our public life. And this relates specifically to this phenomenon that some people call cancel culture. And our conversation, uh, Katie's and mine, was about uh, her experience with cancel culture and scandal and the fact that we didn't really see, uh, we don't see a public mechanism for redemption in those situations. And there isn't really a way for people who have done something wrong to apologize and reconcile publicly, um, at least not on Twitter. <laughs> so, how, so how does thinking of other people as fixed impact or correspond to that phenomenon, do you think? And can we take a growth mindset about other people when we're thinking about cancel culture, scandal, redemption, uh, public apologies, that that whole phenomenon? How do you think about that? So I love that question. And so you and I are recording this at around um, 1130 a.m. Eastern time. This morning at 830, how I start my day was I talked about this topic with my social psychology oh, wow. class at Amherst. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm now wondering if I can assign this podcast as homework for them. That's what's going through my mind. But, but what I talked about was a phenomenon called the fundamental attribution error. And this is, in fact, exactly what you are describing. So the fundamental attribution error is a longstanding principle in social psychology, which describes our tendency to see people's behavior as caused by who they are, Mm. their personality or their disposition, as opposed to the situational factors. So if we see somebody doing something bad, we assume, well, they're a bad person, right? The myth of monsters. If you do something bad, it's because of you. And and if it's fixed, then that's who you are. You cheated on your spouse. You are a bad, you know, unfaithful person. You cheated on an exam. You know, you tailgated. Whatever it is, we see it as fixed and stable. And the problem is it doesn't let them get out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Because then that's who they are and who they will always be. And it is a very strong tendency 
in all honesty, in Western culture, it's mm. a little bit of a, a cultural phenomenon, in fact. Mm. But the fundamental attribution error explains exactly what you and Katie Hill were talking about, which is our tendency to see people's behavior as driven not by the situation, but as being driven by something internal and stable within themselves. Mm. Okay. So how do we then break out of that? Can we take a growth mindset about other people? Yes. And and in fact, part of that is looking at people's behavior as being not caused by who they are, but being caused by the situation that they are in. Mm. And we have a tendency to underestimate the role of the situation or external factors in creating behavior. Mm. So one of the, the things that I talked about with uh, great detail with my students today in class was that we have these different attributions all the time. So if you think about what are the explanations for poverty? Yeah. Is poverty driven by an internal attribution? Well, that person is lazy. Mm. You know, they, they're not hardworking. Mm. Or can we think about the external world? Can we think about the situational factors that led them to be poor? Mm. And the attributions that you make for internal versus external attributions for all sorts of things influence public policy. So another thing which I talked to my students about today, and again, these are students who are, you know, 19, 20, 21, I talked about early in the AIDS epidemic. Hmm. And early in the AIDS epidemic, this again is going to date me and maybe it's going to date you, Ron, I don't know. Um, but we talked about Ryan White. Do you know that name, Ron? I recognize the name, yes. (laughs) So early in the AIDS epidemic, Ryan White was a young boy who became HIV positive, died of AIDS, and through a blood transfusion. So if we think about early in the AIDS epidemic, there was a very clear dichotomy between people who deserve to get AIDS. And again, I'm doing air quotes mm-hmm. here, but but because they had done something, mm-hmm. they'd engaged in same-sex behavior, they had used IV drugs, as opposed to people who had done something that was not their fault. So they had received uh, bad blood, you know, through a blood transfusion. So that's an example about the attributions that we make for people's behavior. Trying to understand external factors that lead to behavior is really, really essential. So somebody who engages in a behavior, if you can understand the external or situational factors that created that behavior, that helps them see a way out, right? Because in a different situation, that person might have made a different choice. So can you explain the connection between mindset and empathy? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are a couple of key things. One factor very clearly is that when we have empathy for someone because of the situational factors, that means that we don't blame them for their behavior, right? We understand, well, you were in this situation and the situational factors led you to behave in a particular way. It's not who you are. It was the situation that you are in. And in fact, understanding that people's empathy can also change, that we can become uh, higher in empathy. So if you think about why people are getting vaccinated or not getting vaccinated or why people are voting or not voting or why people are voting in a particular direction, all of those factors are about trying to understand that person's worldview, the external factors that could have created their behavior. We saw this all the time last year and how people thought about 2016 Trump voters, for example. 
you know, then, then they heard from Rita, which is one of my favorite interviews on the show. Um, uh, a 72-year-old woman from Texas who voted for Trump in 2016 and then, uh, and then changed her mind and realized uh, that, that she could influence a lot of people by telling her story about how she changed her mind. And I thought that was really powerful. Okay, let's talk about stress. Uh, it's pretty commonly understood that a lot of people, maybe even most people, experience physiological stress reactions, even when they're not in extreme life-threatening situations, and that this has negative health consequences. Things like work, relationships, mortgages, the current political climate, they all cause stress. Can you talk about how stress impacts positive people? Great question. So one of the key findings within research on stress is that stress is largely a function of how do we think about stress, that most (sighs) of us in situations, they're not actually life or death. So there's a great book, which I recommend all the time by Robert Sapolsky, that's Hmm. called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Oh, I've heard of this book. I haven't gone to it yet. It is a fabulous book. And, and, And it's a fabulous book in part because the, the title so perfectly illustrates why do zebras not get ulcers? Yeah. Well, here's why. <laughs> zebras don't react like in a physiological heart racing, you know, rapid breathing stress response unless it's actually like they're being chased by a lion, <laughs> right? In, unless they're actually yeah, dying. Right. And then you ask humans, well, how often do you have that stress response? And, yeah. and Ron, how yeah. often do you have that yeah. stress response when you're not being chased yeah. by a lion? Yeah, right. right. Yep. Every a time lot. I go into recording. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, and, and probably even more often, right? Yeah. It's, um, I have a job interview. I have a blind date. I have a recording. I have a, you know, whatever. I have a lot of emails in my yep. inbox, you yep. know, I'm late for my plane. I mean, humans do it all the time. And so what people who are positive do very, very effectively is they're able to adopt a positive mindset in the face of stress. And so people in the face of stressful situations, personally or professionally, are very good at adopting a positive mindset about what is the opportunity to learn and grow from this experience as opposed to kind of getting into a cycle of doom and gloom. Yeah. And there's some biological reasons for this, we think, right? And that's that are pretty well established. Do you want to speak to those a little bit? Well, I mean... The reality is if there is a stressful situation at a biological level and you kind of hang out and don't run from the equivalent of the lion, then you die, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. so the, 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 yeah. the fight or flight response is adaptive, is, is certainly adaptive and is helpful. I think the challenge is that we have continued to respond to many things in our life as if they are life and death yeah. in, and which in reality, they of course are not. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about responding to adversity. How can optimistic people maintain their optimism in the face of adversity? What can people do to practice those things? So this, again, is something that comes easier to some people (laughs) than to others. And I'll share a personal story, which is that so last March, so March of 2020, as the you know pandemic was first really upon us, yeah. I was spiraling because again, as I've said, I'm not a naturally happy person. <laughs> so I was sitting up late at night, you know, on my phone, Googling, you know, symptoms of coronavirus and what's the spread in my community and, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I started receiving emails and in a couple of cases, a physical letter, like in my mailbox from people who had bought my book, The Positive Shift. And they said, 
your book has been so helpful to me during this time of COVID. I remember one person in particular said, every morning I just open it to a random page and I read it and it's so helpful. And I was like, oh, I should read that book. That sounds, that sounds, sounds really good. Um, but but I, I give that as an example in that for many people, uh, it doesn't come naturally to think about positives. And and what was, I think, particularly jarring early in the pandemic is that there were some people who were really spiraling. And then there were other people who were like, I'm going to teach myself Italian. And now I have sourdough starter and I have learned to play the guitar. I know some and, of those people. <laughs> I mean, maybe you are some of those people, but there were other people who were just like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm really spiraling. And I think that's a really perfect example about how mindset mm-hmm. influenced this reality. Yeah. What are we going to do? And this last 18 months has frankly been a perfect opportunity for many of us to gain some skills in how can we think about positive thinking because there has been lots of loss. And there's been, of course, lots of loss in terms of loss of lives, but there's been other kinds of loss. So high school and college students have lost sports seasons and graduations and proms and Families have lost opportunities to travel or family reunions or weddings or, you know, holiday gatherings and so on. So there has been lots of loss. And yet, even within that, there are still people who are saying, in this time of the pandemic, I have learned, you know, these things, these skills, these abilities, these traits, and and that's something that will last. Yeah. there's all, When we think about loss, it, it also feels to me like there's been a, it, there, there's sort of a a global universal sense of loss that's that's in addition to all of those specific losses that's almost singular which is the loss of how it was before and um that that's what i think when i when i when i think about loss and all of the very specific losses that we've all experienced collectively there is this one sort of it is all different now that the the what we what we all collectively lost is how it was before um how do you think about grieving in that? In that, I know this isn't really part of the part of the book, but how do you think about um, grieving collective collective loss or shared shared loss? Well, I think one of the things that has been most challenging is that, in addition to to having the sense of the shared loss, there is also a tremendous sense of uncertainty, mm-hmm. and humans are very bad. <laughs> at dealing with grief that is uncertain. So one of the issues throughout this pandemic has been, we don't know when it's going to end, yeah. right? So so there's a wonderful quote from the book, uh, I think it's the book, Cry My Beloved Country by Alan Payton. And there's a quote about the difference between sorrow and fear. And the quote is much better than I'm gonna say, but it's something like, Sorrow is a journey along, I mean, sorry, fear is a journey along terrible journey, but sorrow is at least an arriving. Mm. And and to me, that's been one of the challenges is I that like throughout that. this pandemic, it, it's really good, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Because, and the, and the example that again, he describes very eloquently is that when you know a storm is coming and the storm is going to destroy your house, there is nothing you can do but wait. But after the storm has destroyed your house, you can start to rebuild. Mm -hmm. And in some senses, I think the thing that has been most challenging for many of us psychologically about the pandemic is we do not know when it's going to end. And that who would have thought, right, 18 months later, I taught this morning 
wearing an N95 mask <laughs> to a group of students <laughs> wow. all wearing masks. Yeah. And who would have thought 18 months ago I would be teaching in a mask and that you would need to wear a mask to get on an airplane or a train or to go into a restaurant in many parts of the country. And one of the challenges is we have no idea when it will end. Will there ever be a return to normal? That That is really unclear, yeah, right? Yeah. Or what's next? It's very difficult to plan for the future because of that. And and looking ahead toward the future is uh, is, is sort of I think, you know, you talk about in the book about travel being a potential source of, but but it's, it's, the anticipa- it's the anticipation, right, of what is going to happen in the future. And right now, because of the uncertainty, we don't, we don't really have the ability to do that as much. But let's talk about what people can actually do to, be, to become happier um, in spite of all of that, in spite of the uncertainty that we're living with day to day, because a lot of the suggestions in your book seem pretty simple to implement. And that's why they're so elegant, I think. Um, uh, sleep is one of my favorite ones, uh, personally. Uh, and I think most people probably know sleeping has health benefits. Um, but can you explain the link between adequate sleep, adequate sleep and happiness? So sleep is one of is one of my favorites as well. Now I have to ask Ron, is that because you're good at it? It's or because, is it because I am you the type I am it? the type of person who goes to bed like clockwork at nine or nine thirty every night. Oh, so you and, are good at and it. And I protect my bedtime uh uh very, very I mean uh, yes. I mean I turn uh, down lots of social invitations so that I can go to bed on time and get up early like five thirty six every day. So all right. So you really yeah. are good at sleep. Yeah. So so good for you. Yeah. So but that sounds insane um, to a lot of people. This is what I'll I got to be honest, it sounds slightly insane to me. And, I, and I'm sort of intensely, I'm feeling intense jealousy right now because um, I'm, I'm horrible at sleep. But anyway, um, but, but so here's what I'll say. We all hear about exercise. Exercise is really yeah. important. And many people are like, yes, it's really important. So I will carve out time to do it. And yet many people, in fact, do not do what you do. Many people do not prioritize sleep. And yet what we know is that sleeping well is good for your physical health. Sleeping is good for your psychological health. One of my favorite studies actually was with married couples. And what they found was that when one or both members of the couple was sleep deprived, they were more likely to have conflict. Oh. And we can all probably, right? We can, can all probably relate that. to that, totally. right? Times in which you are exhausted and so you snap at your friend or your colleague yeah. or your spouse or your child. And so that's just a simple example is that when we are sleep deprived, we are more irritable, we are less forgiving. And so sleep is one of the simplest, yes. Okay, so the list in the book is uh, sleep, pick up a book, take a walk, <laughs> sex, explore religious or spiritual beliefs, practice meditation. Um, Do you want to talk about a couple of your favorites here or even from personal experience or ones that you've heard people uh, find the most accessible and have have the biggest impact? Yes. So, so thanks for the, for giving that list. And, and I'll say that those are all examples of behaviors. What I like about those is that they are all very simple. So, so some people think, well, to be happy, you know, I'm going to need to sell all my belongings and move to Aruba. And, and that isn't true that, that happiness is within these very, very small things. And what I say to people all the time is happiness is very individual. And so when you read that list for some people, they're saying like, oh yes, meditation. And there are other people that are like, oh yes, meditation. (laughs) Exactly. And that's, and that's, and that's really key. Um, Adam Grant actually wrote a great op-ed in the New York Times a couple of years ago, right. In which he was like, 
I hate meditation. And he was like, <laughs> don't tell me to meditate. I mean, I'm sure he said it better than I said it. Yeah. But I love that example because we hear all the time, meditate, meditate. And if you're a meditator, that's great. But if you're someone who says, no, I love reading. You know, reading yeah. is what is what is best for me. Then do that. And for other people, they say, well, I don't have religious beliefs. Is that a problem? And it's not. Pick a different one. So I'm not going to prioritize that list. What I'm going to say is pick the one that resonates with you. And if it's sex, go for it. And if it's meditation, go for it. And if it's religion, go for it, but pick something like, like costumes, try one on and see what you like. See, see what, see what fits. Yeah, exactly. Are there uh, specific links between these things and their ability to change mindset, change your your perception of your own happiness that that um, that are relevant to talk about? Yeah. So I want to say two things. One, yeah. one of the simplest is smile. Oh, uh, I <laughs> I I know this one and I do this one, and it's it makes a big difference. Go, go ahead. Well, no. I, tell me how it makes a big difference. I want to so hear from you. It, yeah. is, it is almost like this little superpower trick that I use on myself sometimes when. Um, especially sometimes when I'm going into an interview or I'm tired or, uh, or I'm about to make a phone call, just smiling, like just n- not because I'm laughing or I'm happy or I'm particularly sort of motivated from the inside, but literally just changing the, the, the muscular facial expression for a couple of seconds changes the way I feel. It changes my, my whole headspace. And it's almost like I'm tricking my brain into thinking, into feeling uh, a different way, and it and it works. Uh, and then within a couple of seconds, I'm like, oh, that's right. I, you know, this this feels good, and mm-hmm. and I'm, now I feel good about doing whatever this thing is that I'm about to do. It's very weird. It's very weird and very simple, right? Yeah, so this yeah. is right. It's very weird and very simple. And so I'll say a couple of things. So Amy Cuddy uh, is pretty well known for her work on power posing, uh, that's right. and 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 so in some extent you know, smiling is kind of an example of the fake it till you make it idea. Mm -hmm. Why don't I do this? Fascinating, very recent research has shown that when you smile, and again, as you just said, Ron, not smiling because you think something is funny or whatever, when you deliberately make a choice to smile, it actually changes how your body responds to pain. A, A very recent study found that smiling when you have an injection, such as let's say like a vaccination, uh, actually reduces the pain of the vaccination. Whoa. So, so that's, that's a really bonkers. important bonkers and super simple, yeah. right? Super simple. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, which I love about smiling is that smiling changes how people react to you. Mm-hmm. So if you're smiling, other people will smile in return. And so it's kind of like this self-fulfilling feedback loop. So smiling is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, what impact does nature uh, or even photographs and house plants have on happiness? So research has shown that looking at nature, again, through a window, looking at a picture, spending time in nature, all of those factors are good for physical health, good for psychological well-being. Very recent research using fMRI data, so data looking at patterns of brain activation, has shown that if you look at a picture of nature, it's relaxing and calming in the brain, Mm -hmm. uh, like you're meditating or sleeping. And so looking at pictures of nature seems to be relaxing at a physiological, at a neurological level for the brain. And that makes us feel better. Oh man. Okay. This one I thought was really interesting. How can buying experiences (laughs) impact happiness? Um, Talk a little bit about that. 
So I, I love this work as well because we often think about the link between money and happiness and we think about the link between money and happiness in terms of buying things, right. belongings, right. right? So, you know, watch, car, you know, purse, shoes, you know, whatever it is. But what research shows is that we adapt very quickly to newfound wealth when we spend it on belongings. In contrast, when we spend money on experiences, it lets us do a few things. One, it lets us anticipate the experience. So I am going to go to Germany, you know, in December. I'm going to then not just go to Germany in December. I'm going to think about what am I going to see? What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? You know, et cetera, all of these things ahead of time. And we get to anticipate that experience. And that can be anticipating the experience of, you know, I am going to go to see this, um, you know, Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. I am going going to go to this concert, you know, et cetera. All of those examples are things that allow us to anticipate the experience, experience it, and then reflect back on it. Okay. Here's one of my favorites, and maybe we'll end with this one. How does building relationships and having meaningful conversations impact our happiness? So this is, in fact, the most important. And And what we know is that having high-quality relationships, again, friends, romantic partners, colleagues, whatever, is the single best predictor of our happiness. And I'll share one story, which I think feels particularly appropriate for a politicology podcast, uh, is that, oh, about maybe four or five years ago now, I was giving a talk in Tucson, Arizona on the science of happiness. I remember it well. And I was talking about, you know, all the different strategies you can use to find happiness. And at the end of the talk, a woman came up to me, waited in line to ask me a question. And she grabbed my hand and she said, I want to be happy, but I am so depressed Mm. about the state of politics in America Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I cannot be happy. And then she said, and I am 87 years old, so I am not going to be alive long enough to wait this out and to see things get better. So how can I find happiness? And I grabbed her hand back and I said, you live in Arizona. Arizona is a swing state. <laughs> I, said, I said, there's nothing happy about voting in Massachusetts. You know, voting in Massachusetts feels like, a, you know, a futile exercise. You never have any meaning to vote in Massachusetts about anything. And I said, you live in a swing state. And I said, here's what you can do. You can join a campaign. You can put up a lawn sign. You can donate money. And you can do something. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an example, I think, about the power of connection. And in fact, I think that's one of the things that the Politicology Podcast is doing, right? That you are bringing people together, whether it's George Conway or Katie Hill or Mary Trump or, you know, whoever. What you're doing is you are bringing people together who are talking about things that matter to them. And whether they are Republicans or Reformed Republicans or longstanding Democrats or whatever, what you are doing is giving people a chance to build relationships relationships. And what I think has been really interesting over the last four or five years is that people are forming all different kinds of political alliances and allegiances because all of a sudden people from across the political aisle and across the political spectrum have said, I care more about democracy Mm -hmm. than I care about being a Republican or a Democrat. What I care about is being in a democracy and doing things to fight for that. And that's an example, in fact, about relationship building. I love that answer. That was so good. Okay, maybe one more. For people who are 
maybe just starting out with uh, starting to practice these things to increase their happiness, what advice would you give to them? Uh, especially, especially for someone who, you know, well, I'm not really sure about this stuff and like life is pretty shitty right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting to think about practicing these things to increase their own happiness? So what I will say as a, as a person who, again, does not naturally find happiness <laughs> yeah. is that happiness for many of us is about practicing. It's, it's not something that happens to us. It's something that we control. And so happiness is about expending time and energy and effort, deciding that you want to be happy, deciding that you deserve to be happy, and then structuring your life in ways that bring you that happiness. As we talked about before, Happiness is very individual. So for somebody listening to this, they're going to say, I don't like nature. Or I don't like meditation or, you know, I don't want to read a book. But for other people, one of those is going to resonate with them. But the first step is saying, I can be happier. I can adopt a growth mindset about happiness, how I feel right now. I'm not stuck in and I can do things to feel happier. And then picking one or two, making it a deliberate part of your life. Okay, so I wanted I want to narrow in on on the very first piece of this, which I think for a lot of people will be the very first piece of the puzzle, which is the decision. Yes. And can you because I've read some literature on 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 like the function of a decision when a decision is made, can you talk about the psychology of that of that that tiny little move, um the power in a decision? Yeah, so the power in a decision is basically saying I am going to do this. So it's saying and and for some people they feel well, I've Not never I could do it, or this is an option, or yes, right, right. I am going to do it. I'm going so making that decision, and then also increasing your likelihood of acting on the decision, right? So the, the so I'm talking about the gap between intention and right, behavior, right, you know, like right. let's say New Year's resolutions, exactly. And I heard an, a really great interview recently. I'm I'm thinking it was Katie Milkman, who's a professor at, at Penn, who has a, a great book out recently. I'm thinking it was an interview, so I want to make sure I'm appropriately crediting her. But she described how making the decision to exercise for some people is saying, I am going to sleep <laughs> in the clothes that I'm going to work out in. Yeah. And I'm going to do it the next morning. And I will say, I have during this pandemic, but you know, pre-pandemic, I used to belong to a gym. I have not walked into a gym for 18 months. Um, I now own a treadmill. And every day I get up and before I do anything, I get on, I brush my teeth, I get on the treadmill. And in fact, I get on the treadmill and I check Twitter, I go through my emails, I do all of that on the treadmill. And that's because I know that if I don't carve out that time in the day, I will never do it. And, and that, again, is my deliberate saying, I know that I feel better when I exercise, but I have to make time for it. So I think it's deciding psychologically that you want to be happier and then picking your things that are going to make you happier and, and scheduling them. So yeah. not just saying, I hope I'll exercise. So you described before, Ron, about how you go to sleep at 9 or 9.30. And, and how you have that in your schedule. And so you're not going to accept an invitation that is at 10 or, you know, a phone call or a TV show or whatever it is. And so again, that's part of saying this is a priority. Often we put the things that make us happy last. Mm. I don't have time to exercise. <laughs> I don't have time to read. I don't have time to meditate. I don't have time to, you know, go catch up with a friend. There's also one other thing that you're probably familiar with, but I want to mention it anyway, which is something I think I read in one of Robert Cialdini's books, uh, Arizona State University. I think it was in his more recent book, Persuasion, but it has to do with creating uh, 
if-then sort of markers in your mind about the circumstances in which you're going to do something in the future so that you're almost you're almost sort of planting a tripwire in your own brain so that when those circumstances manifest, you are primed to make a decision that you've already, you're, you're primed to act on a decision you've already made in the past. So, you know, uh, when the sun goes down, I am going to begin thinking about uh, like the last hours of my evening, right? Or, um, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? I, I do. Okay, and the, you, you and can the, say this probably better than I can. So why don't you? No, no. Yeah. You're doing a great. You're doing a great <laughs> job. And um, and Bob Cialdini's work is is wonderful. And uh, and what psychologists often call it is um, implementation intentions. Ah, so okay. that's the, Thank you. That, the so the kind of like jargony phrase. Ron's um, version again, is tripwire. <laughs> so, and again, if, if then is a very nice way of thinking about it. Psychologists call that implementation intentions. So basically, you are you are going to implement your intentions at this moment. Moment. Mm -hmm. And and the example would be somebody might say, you know, I am going to run tomorrow. But that's a kind of very vague example. And when you have a vague statement, you are much less likely to follow through on it than if you have a deliberate and intentional act. So, you know, at 5.30 a.m. tomorrow, whether rain or shine, I am going to, you know, uh, put on my shoes and here is the route that I am going to go. I mean, th that's so ba basically the idea is getting into greater specificity in your plan and that makes it more likely that you will act on your um, intentions. In fact, in terms of politics, this is one of the things that political scientists know very well, right? Very um, well. Are you going to vote? Yeah. That's not as good as, have you thought about what time you're going to vote? Exactly. Um, are you going before work? Are you going after work? Are you going to vote by mail? And so again, that's the exact same thing, that voting is much more likely to happen if you plan out how, when, where I'm going to go with my sister on my lunch hour, and this is how we're going to do it. Yes, you're totally right. And on the campaign side, we practice that and have done so for a number of years when doing you know, GOTV efforts, for example. If you ask people, so we tell volunteers this on the phone, if you're going to call people and ask them if they're going to vote, uh, don't ask them if they're going to vote. Ask them when and where they're planning to vote. What day are you planning to vote? And and that that actually increases the likelihood that person's going to follow through. Um, there's actually a great book on this. Since we're recommending book, so many books to our <laughs> listeners, uh, there's a great book on all of these types of of tactics, especially that are employed in um, in political campaigns. It's called the Victory Lab. Um, Sasha Eisenberg. Um, back in 2000, maybe like 11, 12-ish, that era. Um, wonderful book uh, if you're interested in how how those types of things uh, are used in political campaigns. So um, setting intentions for when things happen in the future can, can decrease the friction for you to follow through on the things you actually want to do. I think that's the takeaway there. Yes. Um, Catherine... It is, I can talk to you for hours and hours. <laughs> it is always a pleasure uh, to have you on the show. Is there anything you want to leave people with? Love this topic. And I, I guess I think to me, the key message is happiness is extremely important these days as we are entering into our 18th slash 19th month of a global pandemic and that happiness is within reach for all of us. Before I let you go, where can everyone find you on the internet? I am on Instagram at Sanderson Speaking and on Twitter at Sanderson Speaks. Wonderful. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. 
Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.